Hello, welcome to The Armin Show, where we talk about everything science, human behavior, creativity, and more. Thanks for joining, and make sure to subscribe. Hello, and welcome to The Armin Show podcast. We're learning more, science, people, creativity, all the things, expanding our framework. We have an author on this episode, someone in the category of things that I think about, math, how things work, optimization. The book is called Optimal Illusions. Our guest today is Dr. Coco Crum. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Armin. I am glad to have you on. The false promise of optimization. I think about optimization a lot. I've talked about compounding effect before. I've talked about systematization of so many things in our society. I think they connect with what I saw in the book. So it spoke to me quite a bit. And both of us have a nonlinear form of thinking, which I think is super cool. So if you were to describe how you think about things, how would you do that? How I think about things. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the, the hardest question ever? Yes. <laughs> um, or what are some ways you look at things when you're thinking about them? things in general or optimization? Uh, things in general, but also connect to the material, but like, how would you describe your way of thinking about things? If there's any patterns you've noticed along the way, you know, I think I have a mix of a analytical and a feeling way of thinking about things, so to speak. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how those two threads blend together, but, um, they, they somehow do. And I know to the extent I know anything about how I think I, that I leverage both of those modes of taking in the world. That's cool. I like to think about things in a logical form, but then sometimes I'll see patterns. We do a lot of pattern recognition as people, and that is a skill to develop over time. I would say now, before we get into the material of the book, you are in a far off location. What brought you there? And um, what about your path led you to the place you're at currently? Yeah, so I live in a small community on an island off the coast of Washington State. Um, and as with many things in life, it was a, a series of random events that <laughs> ultimately, if I had to trace back, um, led me here, um, but we all like to make narratives in reverse, right? So um, the narrative I, I have for it, or um, to use your language, the, the pattern matching, um, is that I felt um, compelled um, to explore a, you know, a different size of community, a different pace of life. And there was perhaps even something driving me away from these centers of optimization in which I'd spent um, a large part of my life uh, prior to moving here. Mm -hmm. These centers do exist. I had seen your material on Silicon Valley, which is a baseline center for optimization. And there's other places for that. It has happened quite a bit. And you give different examples in the book of how that has occurred in recent times, whether it is from farming, uh, could be dating, could be aviation industry, there's a lot of categories that have been superly optimized. And then you talk about the effects of it after the fact. 
what are the benefits of optimization that we have seen? What are the great positives that we have been glad about? I mean, there's so many. Um, I think humans have always had, um, in part, or you know, what one of the things that distinguishes us from other species is that we have this inclination towards engineering and um, building tools to um, control and um, improve the the natural world around us. Um, so you know, depending on how narrowly you define optimization, um, you know, you could say it's given us everything from um, synthetic clothing to um, global airlines or um, transportation that lets us get around the globe, that lets us um, ship goods, you know, hither, thither, um, to the very advanced market economies we, we see today. Um, it's also allowed us to do a lot of things more safely and improve our lifespans and our health in very directed ways. So one of the examples I use in the book um, uh, is the Green Revolution, which allowed directed crop breeding or um, invented, developed, however you want to see it, um, that improved the lives of billions of people around the world. Um, I also, of course, talk about the costs of, of some of those things, but you asked about, about the benefits. Mm -hmm. That's true. So this has led us in a certain direction in recent time. We've gotten really sharp in certain categories where everything is hyper-perfect in one category. And then the way I see it visually is that it's almost like the supports that would normally be there if everything was at a balanced level they don't tend to be there because now you have like a super tall building that's super skinny, highly optimized, but wind would be more likely to knock it over in some way. So it's a bit of an illusion to say like, oh, that's 400 stories tall, but there's a risk factor involved in it. How would you describe what an optimal illusion is or why we should think of it that way versus as just the great thing of its own accord? Yeah. Um, I think uh, I wouldn't define it so narrowly as there, are, you know, as an optical illusion where these um, very visual, um, very specific, <laughs> um, trompe dieu, right, um, where you you see things in a in a certain way and they turn out to be different. Um, for optimization, I think it's a little bit more subtle. There are trade-offs um, or losses, I call them in the book, that we haven't fully acknowledged. And I think are important um, not to do away with optimization, but in order to um, reframe it in our in our broader human context. Context, excuse me. We're not merely optimizers. We're a lot of other things as well. Is it something to look at the world right now that it has a bunch of different regions that get weird in a way because? It's like a super optimized lithium mining facility or a super optimized uh, dating realm, which where things go to just a few individuals, others are participating, but it's almost like there's a effect that a lot goes to a little and a little goes to a lot. Does that happen a lot? I mean, I think it does. I think that's a, a maybe a, a slightly different 
phenomenon. Um, I see optimization as a process, right? Or a means to control, maximize, minimize in some cases. Um, I think the um, distributions or the, you know, the rich get richer effects that you're describing, um, sometimes those happen because of optimizations and sometimes those happen just sort of organically in the natural world. So I, so I would see those two ideas or concepts as sometimes um, working in concert, but but sometimes actually separate ideas. Mm-hmm. Can the average person opt out of optimization, as you have mentioned, or is it something where you have no choice but to reframe your thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I that's sort of one of the conclusions I, I reach in the book is that as a cultural phenomenon and optimization, you know, it's important to distinguish between the mathematical and engineering techniques and the term I use sort of more use uh, more loosely as a cultural phenomenon, which is this um, lens or a, a philosophy, a way of seeing that everything should be maximized, right? The world is ours to improve. Um, and I think it's it's difficult to opt out of, well, both of those. But, you know, I'm talking specifically about the latter one, the cultural phenomenon, um, simply because it's overtaken our our way of of seeing. Um, and, you know, we can move um, to even more <laughs> extreme destinations than mine. Right. Um, you can move to the woods and have no Internet and um, use primitive tools and engage in subsistence farming. Um but in most cases, you know, that you're you're still going to be touched in some ways by by modernity and by these improvements and this way of thinking, especially if you're in the West, um, that's been shaped by by optimization. Um, so I do think there are, you know, you could certainly invent a way to opt out completely. Um, but it's very, very difficult. And I'm not even sure that's the right approach for most people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes with this process is that it takes out the some of the fun, the liveliness that we have as people. If like with the GPS example, the perfect path is always found. So we would never meander some different way. We would never really think too much about the path. So we lose that sense of direction in a way. It would just be always A to B is perfectly completed. So it's efficient, but we are less in it as people does it take out a bit of our human element when things are hyper optimized yeah absolutely i mean like like i said earlier um i think optimization is in some ways a a very human tendency so um there are just other other parts of our humanity and i think one of the things we lose is um a sense of that human scale and connection. Um, GPS is a great example because, um, you know, we 
might get to a destination faster and with fewer errors, but we, um, you know, we lose certain opportunities for serendipity or for the conversation or the connection that might come from having to ask somebody for directions, um, or from getting lost. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I like serendipity very much. Personally, I've always spoken about it. I like variety, randomness, non-contextual things. They speak to me a lot because it happenstance. Oh, okay, that occurred. It seems like there's some randomness to all the things. And entropy seems to... It's something that appeals in a way. And then when you remove any of those elements and everything is so structured and towards a result, then it's almost like, oh, okay, we could have an algorithm do that. We didn't need to be here in the first place. So it's a little bit removing of sorts. But I do like the elements of serendipity and such. Mm -hmm. Happenstance, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You enjoy those features? Has happenstance always spoken to you? Is it meaningful? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I um, certainly love the unexpected in, in some ways. Um, I'd be lying if I said I um, exclusively love surprises. Um, I think like like anyone, and especially somebody who's grown up um, very much steeped in this culture of engineering and optimization, um, I, I do like to make plans. I like to think about the future. I like to... Um, try to control it in, in certain ways, not maybe not in big ways. Um, but you know, I, I think it's a natural human tendency to, to want to know, um, and to want to make a dent and be able to, to shape, um, the future. So, so that is, um, that is optimization and it sometimes runs counter to the also very human desire for, um, surprises or exploration or, or randomness as you, as you put it, although that's a, that's a loaded term. Valid point on that. I've read about randomness a bit, so I'm on that same page there. Actually on that, your, how does your mathematical background come into your thinking about things? Do you see things in terms of like, um, compounding or parabolas or effect? How do you see, when you look at things, do you see the math behind things as you look at them? I, I don't walk around the world seeing parabolas. <laughs> um, um, uh, I, you know, I, I think I've um, always enjoyed math and numbers, both the, the sort of conceptual part of it and the, um, you know, figuring and calculating part of it. Um, but it's actually never been, um, you, you asked at the beginning about ways of thinking, or I put it seeing the world. Um, that's never been the primary lens uh, through which I, I look at things. Um, and so I think I've always held it as a, you know, a separate language, a tool, um, I'm talking about mathematics, um, 
and you know one way among several of of looking at the world and i i think i see it um you know when i am looking through that lens maybe not as parabolas and equations and numbers but um as models right there are a lot of models we can um we can use to circumscribe some part of the world and to describe it and understand it and um, interrogate it. Um, so, you know, and I, I don't see that as terribly distinct from other forms of circumscribing the world, right? Through, through stories, um, through philosophies. Um, so yeah, hopefully that, that makes sense. It does. It made me think of, I don't know why, because the parabolas, two things. One, basketball players, when they shoot, they shoot parabolas. So all basketball players are shooting parabolas. And then the second thing is that uh, Markov uh, simulations, they get that energy minimum. That's one of the ones I think about sometimes of when there's a low friction connection between uh, two things or a concept, or you figure that out in a category, you're at like a energy minimum. And I think you mentioned that in the book too, of how do you do that if you have uh, like mountains of different peaks and you would get to the top of a, a lower peak but the actual best way to do things is at this peak you would have to go down your peak up to that one uh, how does someone avoid getting into a smaller peak maximization than some actual the top peak in some category that's the most optimized way to do a type of farming or something how do they get out sounds of like it? you you do see parabolas <laughs> when you look at the world <laughs> um you know i don't know how to answer that question i'm, I'm not a, a um a, a pop psychologist or a, a lifestyle guru um i you know there are obviously mathematical techniques for doing search um and you know, best as best as possible, avoiding those local maxima and, you know, not getting stuck in um, the, the bottoms of holes, as you put it. Um, but in daily life, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> there. There. I'll mention that one. I want to go back to farming. You mentioned in the book about farming and how it got more and more detailed in what would be done in a region and how much could be grown a crop from the earliest person. I forgot his name, Borlaug, I believe, and how efficient it could get. Can you take us through the path of that optimization? And if it is a problem where we are at now from how optimized it's gotten? Right. So um, the story I tell in the book is about a particular farmer who's um, you know, uh, somebody who's gone against the grain, so to speak, um, in his choices around genetically modified crops. Um, and I, you know, spoke to in the few years I spent traveling in the, the Midwest, um, I spoke to a number of farmers and, um, you know, row of row crops. Um, and, um, sort of synthesized a, a, a bunch of perspectives there and and some of the 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 sadnesses and the the losses I'd seen um Norman Borlaug um 
was um or is considered sort of the, the father of the green revolution um made very impressive um leaps forward and um um crop selective crop breeding for for particular traits um and you know allowed he was some one of the um people i was mentioning earlier as um you know really taking or or allowing huge advancements in um our our nutrition and our lifespans and um uh just you know life around the world um what was your question so the has often how did optimization progress through the farming, let's say the last hundred years of farming improvements and have we gotten to a point that is not good right now? Has it gotten to a bad point as of now? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if optimization progressed so much as, you know, we utilized optimizations to, um, continue to make improvements on, on plants and, um, you know, some of these um, were driven, or a lot of them were, were driven by agricultural technology companies that introduced um, genetic modifications often um, in order to support the, the chemicals that they were developing simultaneously, um, the herbicides, pesticides. Um, and um, what happened is, and, and then, you know, in conjunction with that, there were a number of optimizations in how um, crops are delivered around the processed and delivered around the world. So in the case of the sugar beets, which is one of the, that's the um, crop of the, the farmer I profile, um, you know, these, the um, cultivation of sugar beets was centralized to into fewer and fewer hands. Um, it, you know, the, um, distribution or the processing was centralized into factories that are on site for various reasons. Even the um, distribution, um, some of these co-ops that um, that own a lot of the sugar beet production in the U.S. have their own railroad lines. Um, so um, over time, these optimizations kind of consolidated um, production into fewer and fewer hands and um, streamlined ways of, of doing the cultivation and the, the processing. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh, also, um, you know, we've had huge improvements in farming equipment um, that has allowed less and less human labor to be needed um, in order to produce the same same amount of stuff and market mechanisms um, that allowed trading. And in many cases, not in the case of sugar, because sugar is actually a, um, you know, one of these protected um, crops. But in the case of a lot of other row crops, um, um, essentially created global markets um, for corn and soy and wheat. Um, so I think you asked for sort of a normative judgment on, you know, what's what's good and bad. Um, I, I tend to stray away from those. I, I, um, I'm personally worried about the, the state we're in with American agriculture. Um, I, I think it's um, obviously like I said, allowed for a, a 
huge amount of people to be to be fed and um, you know get the the calories that they need. Um, it's um, led to the cheapest food we've ever seen in world history, and um, also the the most diversity and abundance of crops around the world. I mean, it's it's simply incredible. You walk into almost any Walmart or grocery store in the United States and the the range of fruits and vegetables that you can find is is mind-boggling. Um but you know there are also huge losses and and I think there are people who dis- disagree with me in, in terms of like maybe they'd say we're not as a, at a <laughs> as a dangerous of a juncture point that that I see it as but um I I do think It'd be hard to disagree that there aren't losses that we've experienced with these gains. I get the sense when it gets very optimized that you're almost at a precipice and anybody that doesn't participate in that really efficient way of doing things has no shot. So then it's very segmented parts of the population or places on the planet that have that uh, systems in place. And then if you're not part of that, no chance. And if you are part of that, anything breaks down on the sides. Now you have a real breakdown versus if it's not so optimized, then you have more room for handling a breakdown. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, optimization introduces fragilities um, into systems. I, I do think, you know, it's important to note that there are um, ways that, that aren't accessible to everybody they're they're privileged ways to um you know participate less in the system you see um the rise of farmers markets local local crops local agricultural shares um which i i think are fantastic but you know not um certainly not accessible everywhere and um, to everyone and even not to anywhere near a a majority of people. Actually, on that concept, I had once spoken with Jessica Kraft who talked about rewilding, like going back into the wild Mm -hmm. and becoming more wild as a people uh, learning primitive happenings. Is that one way to, I guess, take away the, if there's the feeling of unease about the direction, things are going to backtrack to where things were more palpable and maybe making fire or eating plants that are found or things that are much more there's not as much of a gap between our automatic way of doing things and what's right there yeah like a more or tangible um and connected yeah i mean that's certainly those are certainly ideas i personally ascribe to um i also think that it's those are ideas that i sort of increasingly hear in the zeitgeist is um you know, whether it's, it's rewilding or, um, in sort of the, what's traditionally meant, like getting back to nature, et cetera, um, or simply seeking more real human connection, um, you know, even in the thickest urban center. Um, so I, I do hear that in the zeitgeist. I, I think more and more people are yearning for that and, and feeling that, um, Again, I I stray away from like <laughs> these like normative solutions. I I don't think there's like a ten point 
checklist um, to to quote unquote solve optimization. I I think it's more sort of that's we're, we're naturally as a species going going to veer away from um, some of these you know some of this over adhesion to to the um, perspectives of optimization. I think that's just sort of naturally going to happen, and and rewilding I, I think is part of that that tableau for sure. In the aviation space or airline industry, what is a weakness that can show up if it gets hyper-optimized as far as uh, flights and timings and when people book and filling up the plane? And what 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 is a potential drawback or any issues that could come up that show up in the airline industry? Well, um, I'm not an expert on the, the airline industry, but um, I think the, the sort of layman's answer to that is, um, you know, the same as for any optimization, you see increasing fragilities, right? We've all seen um, over the last years, right? These um, weather events that lead to cascading delays and shutdowns um, across the country, even in places that weren't affected by the particular weather events. And um, that's the result of, um, you know, schedules being, you know, margins getting thinner and thinner and schedules being becoming tighter and tighter, even with um, algorithms that that kind of plan and try to predict um, and simulate some of these these potential for for delays. Um, so I, I I do think, you know, it's um, at a high level, it's similar to what you would see in any overly optimized system from the electrical grid to an organism that's been overly optimized and um, where, a, you know, it becomes stronger, but also more susceptible to, to disease or, um, or, you know, pathogens. How much of optimization is connected with algorithms and computing or how much of it would have been here regardless of that industry? Um, algorithms are tools that are, um, you know, we've always had algorithms. We just now have maybe more sophisticated ones. Um, we've always had optimizations. We've, we just now have tools to like computing tools, um, to, um, make more complex optimizations. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe you could refine the question so I can better answer it. Oh, that's about it on that one. It's okay. kind of a reasonable, I would say. Uh, one of the things that came to mind while I was reading was we as people want to control all things or have a tendency towards that. And so when we see a path to do that very uh, smoothly or in an advanced way, then we're, oh, this is a real thing and we figured out a form. And then we do that. How much, this might be almost philosophical question, but how much control can people actually have versus it's almost uh, convincing oneself that they got somewhere? Kind of philosophical question. Um, yeah, <laughs> that one's deep. Um, like how much control do we have? Sort of, or yeah, yeah. How much control 
uh, do we have and that is associated with trying to maneuver productively beyond like our being something that's 10x 100x 1000x beyond our just regular moving our hands and doing things is it like a like is it a functional thing that control is happening or is it just the convincing of oneself and then it'll break down it's a broad question of thought but something mm. I mean, comes to mind in that category. we're all going to die, right? <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer that. I, I mean, we all like to convince ourselves we can control things. Um, I think that's a, that's obvious. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a, a, a numeric answer for how much control we we all have over anything valid the thought i guess that's a thought question category of i think about some of these things sometimes quite a bit mm -hmm. so yeah what I do you think out there i think uh, i think that i don't know how far we've gotten as a people it, se it seems sometimes like some of our biggest advancements or like our huge trajectory let's say we went to mars would be once again, we just, it's like a logistics thing. We're now on Mars. So that's our, one of our most advanced potential things we could ever do as people is go over there. So mm -hmm. I don't know if it, some parts of it look like there isn't, a, some of our largest goals don't seem to have like this hugely upward trajectory that they would seem to have in description. That's, I guess, my thought of it. Yeah. Or like oh, so you're saying going to Mars is overrated. I don't I mean I agree uh, with that, but <laughs> uh it seems like okay, now we're on Mars. It's almost like it's not that different from okay, now we're on other continent or now we're on other which is great, but No, oh, well it's hugely different. It's like a lot shittier than on Earth, right? Why would this you why would you <laughs> Am right. I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say shittier? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. This is true. We say things here. That's one of the great things about program. We have our thoughts. It's open-ended for our thoughts, which is a good thing. But it is true. The dynamics there are not good, and it could be built in such a way. But even in an almost an ideal form, it would be another here. So more space and things, and then maybe it could expand beyond that. But I don't attach a grandiose nature to it beyond what it is. That's, I guess, how I'd So if you had the opportunity to go to Mars, would you take it? I could do it, but I wouldn't, it would be, I wouldn't get the feeling that we have now. I think I had this illusion when I was younger that there was some real trajectory. And then over time I realized not so much. It's a little bit of like moving things around, mm. okay, which is cool too. And I like action and momentum, but the idea of this towards somewhere, I kind of don't have that as much. Yeah. So I'm you stop seeing the parabolas as much. That's what you're saying. I stopped seeing the parabola as much. <laughs> this is true. It turned more into a linear and then sort of a, maybe one of those flattens out into a zero derivative 
line type deal. Yeah. That's, funny. That's funny. That's a good one. I like to turn it back on myself. And that's good. I didn't usually describe that concept. I don't know if I've described it on this program ever of my thoughts. So that's kind of a cool thing. We have our thoughts that we run through on a, re on a regular basis, which is important. That's actually uh -huh. one category I, I always like to check on. Are there things you remind yourself of on a regular basis or in journaling or messages you like to either take in often or put out often? Is there a category that speaks to you? Like um, mantras or? Could be mantras, could be a category of what you like to journal about. Oh, I see. Well, you've just added a new one, which is like, I, my, I, I'm going to start a thankfulness journal for, for not be every day. I'm going to be thankful for not being on Mars. Like how lucky am I to not have been born on Mars? Yeah. Um, and not have been sent there as some kind of like wild experiment. Um, so I don't know. I like to, I like to read fiction. Um, and I suppose I like to write semi-fictional things too. Um, it's a little bit of a disappointment that I wasn't allowed to, to be fictional in my book <laughs> and had to stick to the facts. That's a true point. Also, if you could have, you would have added in some story type element. That's cool. Like creative. Well, well, I mean, I, isn't it more fun to, to make up? Sometimes it's fun to. I had a lot of fun writing the book. It was fun to recount stories, but it's also fun to make up stories, I think. That's true. I've spoken about this before. I've always read nonfiction for the most part, but fiction allows you to take nonfiction and then add on to it in a way that the things that just happened by default probably wouldn't. So you're giving life a bit of oomph that it would probably not have unless you shook this up a hundred times and maybe once it would be that but because you're doing it of your own accord it takes that basis and then it has your elements how would you describe fiction writing and or reading and how that connects to the, the non-fiction world um i don't know i mean sometimes fiction is um more true to life as we all know than the nonfiction. Um, I just think it's more fun. You know, I think a lot of nonfiction these days is boring. Um, it's like, it's just kind of formulaic, um, like sort of air, air, airport bookstore kind of stuff. Here's 10 things to um, get better at sales. Um, so, I mean, I do hope, I, I do feel like we're maybe entering a, a period in human history where stories and fiction become more important again. So I'm excited about that. This is an important point I've thought about recently that the now, because so much of the baseline things are handled and maybe more will be handled through automation and robotics and you'll walk and do the thing and move the thing and take care of all those things. So until that our minds are matched up with the coolest thing that's left over is our creativity and coming up with scenarios that don't really exist and aren't standard operating procedures. Would you agree in that sentiment that that's what we have 
uh, to go towards more of as time progresses? Partly, um, I think we're, um, I actually um, don't think it's a glorious thing that, that robots free us from our biological realities, because I, I think what makes life kind of interesting and exciting is um, the, the fact that we are um, tied down and constrained and in these wonderful ways by our biology and by our physical reality and the, the material world around us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, do I think it's a good thing that machines are, are doing a lot of the um, dirty, unsafe work that, that humans once have to do? Absolutely. Um, but um, I, I think creativity, as you, as you use the term, um, is often tied into our biology. Um, so I, I don't know that we can separate things so easily um, and automate away certain um, unsavory parts of being alive in order to quote unquote free our creativity. Does that make sense? That's maybe an unconventional thought. No, I think it's, yeah, I, I sort of segment these concepts, but they're not as disconnected as I make them appear. Like, oh, if suddenly if you take care of someone's washing dishes, suddenly their creativity will blossom because now the dishes are taken care of. So it's not exactly so direct. And also even the physical movement actually uh, kind of link with that. They're not so separated. It's more of a Venn diagram connected like mm -hmm. you're describing. Yeah. One thing you're also saying there, very important limitation is so valuable. Some of the people that have struggled most is let's say somebody who was very well off at age 18, 19, and then they got some huge amount of attention or money tossed at them. And then because of the lack of limitation, it's almost they get into a state where too much and then I, I call it hemorrhaging, they get to a point where they're just hemorrhaging everything left and right, because they have no sense of their being. So the opposite of that is some sort of limitation structure, uh, constraints, and then we work from that and it, it kicks in our human instinct of sorts because it seems like the most fulfilling thing is to kick into our human instincts that are there versus having them taken care of somewhat and then not using them in some way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm imagining like a 22-year-old um, kid who got rich quick and hemorrhaging dollar bills everywhere. It's a, it's a kind of a gruesome image. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Hemorrhaging. I, I always think of the word more lightly, but if the actual word, it is pretty gruesome. That's a good point. There probably would be a lighter word that actually is more fitting with that. It's oh no, I like the gruesome. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a more interesting visual. That's true. And then it's more, it stays in the mind. That's another thing. These things are all connected. I was just describing yesterday that all of our memories are only linked to mostly things that had an emotional context. And if there was no emotional connection at that moment, anything that was just a standard operating procedure type of thing, we almost have no recollection of it in our many years of existence. Um, is that, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I could think of counter examples, but I think you're mostly right. Um, Right. Yeah. There could be 
right certain yeah events or things that did not have emotion tied to them but still we have some memory of that yeah i can remember a few boring things i've done but tend to remember the more <laughs> emotionally charged ones right mm -hmm. your current uh, material was on optimization you have written before and you have done studies before what spoke to you most of your past learnings that you recall today are there key moments in your creativity or writing that were they stand out as uh, feature points today you know, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't, this was the first um, significant thing I'd written publicly. I've written, I've always written a lot um, privately. Um, um, and I've always loved it. Um, so what has stood out in the past? You know, I've, I've, maybe this isn't exactly what you were asking, but I've always loved letter writing as a form. Um, either long form or, or emails, um, it's just a difference in, in kind of tool. Um, so I think it's interesting what, um, writing to one specific person does for, for one's thinking and one's style, um, compared to something like writing a book where you're writing to a, a very unknown very broad audience, most of whom you'll, you know, never interact with or, or get a response from. Um, so, so I think letter writing and um, also the the diary as a as a format is really interesting to me. I um, reread recently Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a um, written as a compilation of of diaries and letters. Um, and yeah, I guess I've just been meditating on that medium as a as a means of expression. I like diaries very much. The actual thoughts come through. It's something nice. And then that concept that you're bringing up for letter writing, there's something great about two things. One, there's back and forth, so there'll be feedback and there'll be actual connection of depth versus you would not uh, you would put out material to a reader. But then that's it for a lot of you'd never hear back. And then also the depth builds up. And to me, the depth is like a 2x depth is worth like 4x to me in uh, memory or how I look back at things because you're getting somewhere. And then, okay, you're building on that. And then you bounce off that and then you build that and build that, build that. Whereas if it's just one commentary, there's nothing for the branches to link onto. And that's it. It just stays there. And here are some points. But if there is a back point, okay, this. Also, this builds on this. And then like a nonlinear thinker, there's a lot of uh, great interconnection that can happen over time. They're not even close in a way. Yeah. Say. No, for sure. I mean, that's another benefit. I, I think it's what you're saying about letter writing is that there's a, a dialogue. Mm -hmm. I highly value about that and feedback. Feedback has always been very valuable to me because... I kind of, the way my mind works, I don't pick up, I didn't pick up on most things a long time ago. So I had to reverse engineer things one by one by one. So any mm -hmm. sort of feedback was really helpful versus if I just got everything intuitively or instinctively, then maybe it would not be as highly valuable to me at that time, I would say. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Let me bring this one in here. If you had to summarize a message you would want people to take away from your book for their day-to-day -day living or something you'd want them to think about, how would you describe that message to the general public? Yeah, I mean, one message, there there are a few, um, and I don't think any of them are particularly succinct or something you could put on a t-shirt. Um, but one thing that I found important um, and I, I think I see, you know, relating back to our conversation about this inclination towards local agriculture or refining community. Um, but, but one thing I think is important and I see people turning towards is um, kind of avoiding shortcuts or a return to understanding things from first principles or kind of this reconnection in various ways with the material world or, or other humans. Um, so I offer that as a takeaway, maybe not a prescriptive one, but kind of um, something that I think is a trend um, and has certainly helped me is, um, you know, in, in, admitting in other perspectives beyond uh, one of optimization and engineering is um, it, trying as much as possible to understand things from first principles and to connect with the world um, in direct rather than mediated ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are there any people who have guided you the most along your way or any certain personality types of those people that you meshed with the most over time that uh, mapped you into the, where you are today? There are a lot. I mean, I, I, there are pretty much everybody I um, profiled in the book um, were individuals who I thought were approaching life in a way that was interesting or, or new to me and you know, that I resonated with in some way, even if it might've been very, very different um, from my way of, of seeing or doing things. Um, and even if I might've disagreed with a lot of what they were doing. Um, and then, like I said, I mean, I, I love fiction authors and there's so much fiction that's, that's inspired me over time. I don't know how, how specific you want to get, but I certainly can. <laughs> well, that one, because I don't usually check, I always check about nonfiction. Is there one fiction author you might toss at, that people might want to check? If you're going to pick one or two. Oh, just one? Two. We'll go with two because one seems limiting. Okay. Um, well, who have I? I've been, um, I just started a book by a, um, Romanian author called Solenoid. Um, so I'll, I'll plug that one, even though, though I am barely into it. Um, and then gosh, there's so many older fiction writers, but, um, first one that comes to mind, cause uh, I was just rereading a few of her stories is Alice Munro, um, who's not necessarily the, you know, a, I wouldn't necessarily write in the way that she does, but I, I so admire it and I think it's beautiful. It made me think I had one long time ago, I used to write a personal development blog and there was a guy who was 
popular in the personal development space. And he was writing all nonfiction. And then now he only writes fiction stories for children. And it's a complete 180 flip from everything he was doing for many, many years. And he only writes now those uh, stories and fanciful worlds. And it's such a switch from what he yeah, was Yeah, yeah. Maybe we've had more good stories for children. We wouldn't need all the self-help. This, there's a good point there. Because then, oh, I can join this world. Oh, that's cool, that thing. And then you look at the world differently. For some, self-help might be too much like do these four things. It seems too right there versus this dragon is going there and then it flies off and there's a cloud and then it moves and then the fire and then it goes off into the planet. Oh, okay, that's how people connect. Oh, that's some risk I can take. I can be confident through this way, like the dragon. So there's a little bit of a... Totally. That's wrong. Learn a lot from dragons. I agree. Long live dragon. <laughs> fire everywhere. That's a funny thing. Uh, my last one, Andy, is either would you have a question for me or um, do you know your Myers-Briggs or Big Five personality type? Oh, wow. Things? That's a that's a new one. Um, what Do you want to know my horoscope sign? Not horoscope. That one's oh, not okay. Oh, not two. your thing? Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I kind of place those all in the same category. But um, well, what's your Myers-Briggs? It's ENTP. It's always okay. been ENTP. So like the comedian type or like poke at things or attorney or debater, logical yeah. kind of scientist. What's your horoscope type? That one, which I have no connection with. It's just that it exists, but it would be uh -huh. Scorpio. Scorpio, got it. So yeah. dangerous, very Interesting. dangerous kind. Right? Oh, it's, oh, they're dangerous. Okay. I mm -hmm. think so in that one, but yeah. Um, no, I don't. No, what, what question do I have? Gosh, my, my battery is at 4%, so it might kind of cut off on us, but um. What do you enjoy most about doing a podcast? Oh, I will do this one. Uh, I enjoy quite a few things. I'm very interested in people. People are the most interesting thing to me on the planet, more than things, rivers, trees, water buildings, all kinds of logistics, whatever it might be. People uh, building a depth of connection over time, um, having a record of... Actually, I made a thing about top eight things I liked about or learned from doing 400 episodes. And one was having a recorded talk is so cool because so much just disappears into nothingness, but to have it and to look back on for that certain period of time, how cool is that? I think it's very, very cool. Some things can't be recreated two years later, like that person's no longer there. They don't talk about this or this is a different world or, or at that moment, that was a moment. And so that those are some of the coolest features about, oh, and then um, maybe uh, attributing features. I can figure out something I can, some people are like self-esteem can be, things can be transferred or communicated, understanding. It's just so expansive. So for the way my mind works, it's really a thing versus something that's, it has, it has the parabola to it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful question there. Cool. Dr. Coco Crump, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show, bringing some knowledge from your book, Optimal Illusions, and as well, a variety of topics in relation to that, bringing the knowledge that you have to us and sharing it on the program. Glad to have had you on. Thank you so much, Armin. You know, and we are out. The Armin Show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades, 
a lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand, to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Army Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself, bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment, information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it, and onward we go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had, and we'll see you on The Armin Show next time.